from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 8. Having confessed the 12 articles of the Christian faith, our catechism asks, how are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we're dealing with one of the most fascinating and important aspects of our faith, our confession about God. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess all that's necessary for a Christian to believe. Now our creeds are Trinitarian creeds. They focus on the works of our triune God. They teach us that there is one God who has made himself known in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The truth of the Trinity is the most fundamental truth of our Christian faith. And yet it's also one of the most difficult for us to understand. On the one hand, we confess that there is only one God. And on the other hand, we believe that God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is something here that is beyond our understanding. But that makes sense. We need to remember that we are finite creatures made from the dust of the earth. God is the majestic, glorious, infinite, eternal God, highly exalted above us. God wouldn't be who he is if we could fully understand him. And so it's important for us to hold fast the wondrous mystery of the Trinity. In John 17, the Lord Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Anyone who does not know the only true God is without eternal life. Different people may worship all kinds of self-made gods. Yet it is the only true God who alone gives life to those who know him and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. To know the truth concerning God, we must turn to his inspired word. With eyes of faith, we need to see what God has made known to us about himself. In John 17, Jesus prayed a beautiful prayer for his disciples and for all who would believe in him through their testimony. His prayer was that just as he and the Father were one, so his followers might also be one with him and with each other. There is no greater blessing than being joined in union with God 
in Jesus Christ. The glorious wonder of God's grace is that we may have communion with the Father through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ the Son, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And so with eager hearts, let us consider the treasure of knowing our triune God. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Christ has made known the Father to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is a wondrous mystery, and it is a glorious truth. This afternoon we deal with the truth that we cannot fully understand. How on the one hand there is but one God, and yet on the other hand how God exists in three persons. Our Athanasian Creed provides a beautiful summary of what we believe about our triune God. It speaks about how we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. It speaks about how the Father is God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God, and yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. It says that the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Can you understand that, beloved? And neither can I. The problem is that we are here dealing with one of the mysteries of our faith. We are trying to understand someone who is ultimately incomprehensible. The difficulty is, is that God is far greater than anything in his creation. We have nothing with which to classify him. We don't have a standard to which to compare him. For us as sinful people, this often poses a problem. So often we reject what we cannot understand. By nature, we're inclined to think that we're at the center of the universe. The result is that we accept or reject things based on our own experiences in life. The Bible teaches us that God is one in being. In Deuteronomy, Moses instructed the people about who their God was. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Israel was unique among the nations. They all had many gods. They had gods of fertility, gods of Rain, gods that represented the sun and moon, gods of war, etc. And yet to his covenant people, the Lord made clear, he was God, him alone. Those who believe in many gods are hopelessly lost. Who do they turn for, to for this and who do they turn to for that? In many animist religions, if people want rain, they pray to the rain god. If they want prosperity, they pray to the fertility god. If they want victory, they pray to the war god. And yet in their religion, all the gods are against each other. You never know if you may have accidentally offended one of them. What a hopeless way to live. And that same hopelessness also abounds in our so-called civilized society. 
The true God is not worshipped and thanked. Instead of God, we, we idolize all kinds of other things. Success, money, power, a good time, sex, drugs, food, and more. Like slaves, people seek these things and devote themselves to these things. But you can never find lasting satisfaction in any of those things. On the outside, it can appear that things are going well for such people. But spiritually, they're lost. Their end is destruction and hopelessness. True joy and happiness come from knowing the one true God. There is only one God. In Isaiah 44, the Lord Israel's King and Redeemer says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In Isaiah 45, the Lord says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is confirmed by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. And so, beloved, we also confess one God, because this is the way the Lord has revealed himself to us in his word. Besides teaching us that God is one in being, the Bible also teaches that God exists in three persons. Already in the Old Covenant, God made it clear that the Godhead consisted of more than one person. In Genesis, God gives us a glimpse of who he is. In the creation account, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. From God saying, let us make man in our own image, it appears that there are more than one divine persons. And so we see that right from the very beginning of his self-revelation, God has given us hints about who he is. Now, this truth has been made clearer to us in the new covenant in the one divine essence, there are three distinct persons. When Jesus gave instructions to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he commanded them to baptize his followers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the closing benediction of 2 Corinthians, Paul pronounces the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Most Sunday afternoons, we depart church after hearing these words of blessing from our triune God. Yet also, this truth is rejected by many. The fact that God exists in three persons is a stumbling block that prevents many Jewish people from coming to faith. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God, the Messiah who came to save them from their sins. 
And so also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has not benefited them. They're still stuck, waiting for the promised Messiah, although he came already more than 2,000 years ago. Also today, there are many who reject the truth of the Trinity. There are many anti-Christian cults who deny this truth. Think, for example, of the Jehovah Witnesses. Many of them are well-intentioned people who have a zeal for God, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. In fact, they have deliberately distorted the truth. They have their own Bible translation because, in no, because no matter what other version you read, John 1 verse 1, it professes the fact that Jesus Christ, the Word, is God. Do you know why such people stumble? It's because they cannot accept what they do not understand. And beloved, we should be very careful not to do the same. Within our hearts, there is a tendency to want to rationalize things, to figure them out, to comprehend. That drive to understand what we do not understand is what makes us who we are. It's what separates us from the animals. God created man in his own image. He made man the crown of his creation. And yet man is still a creature of God's creation. We need to respect the fact that there are limits to our understanding. Man is not God. Our God is so great, so majestic, so awesome. He is incomprehensible. God is far greater than anything in his creation. We have nothing with which to classify him. Isaiah says in chapter 40, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And after describing God's kingship over the world, Isaiah adds in verse 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. There is no standard to which we can compare God. He is unique. His majesty and greatness are far beyond our understanding. In a certain sense, we can say that the truth of the Trinity is a wondrous mystery. We know the basic facts because God has revealed them to us in his word. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, but we cannot fully explain it. It's too wonderful for us. In Isaiah 55, the prophet spoke these words on behalf of the Lord. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The truth of our triune God is a mystery. We know God only insofar as he has made himself known to us. One of Job's friends asked, Can you find out the deep things of God? 
Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Yes, beloved, let's admit it. We cannot fully understand the Lord our God. The doctrine of the Trinity is beyond our comprehension. It is another reason for us to praise our God. Together with the psalmist, we say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We don't worship the Lord our God because we fully understand Him. We worship Him because He is the only true God, our gracious Father in Jesus Christ. In our first point, we've seen that the doctrine of the Trinity is a wondrous mystery. In our second point, we'll see that it is a glorious truth. Many scholars divide the Gospel of John into two parts. Chapters 1 to 12 forms what they call the Book of Signs, and chapters 13 to 20, the Book of Glory. John 13 to 17 deals with Jesus' teachings to his disciples and his prayer for them in the upper room where they had celebrated the Passover. In these chapters, we find an unexpected theme central to Jesus' preaching and prayer on that night was his revelation of an exposition on the Trinity. In the hours preceding his arrest, Jesus made clear to his disciples the close connection between him and his heavenly Father and the Spirit whom they would send. Jesus knew that the deep, mysterious truth of the Trinity was of utmost importance for his disciples that very night. It was the teaching that they needed to hear to help them to deal with the trials that were coming. Christ would soon face arrest. He'd, he'd be taken before both the religious rulers of the land and before the civil magistrates. He would be condemned to die, to suffer the worst death imaginable, crucifixion. Christ's heart goes out to his disciples. They would be scattered. They would be confused. Satan would cause them to doubt all that Christ had taught them over the years. To help his disciples through those sorrows and temptations, Christ taught them about the Trinity. The point that needs to be clear, beloved, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not some dusty, dry, boring topic. It's not something that just makes for interesting theological debate. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential for our salvation. It's necessary for us to come to know God in all the fullness and riches of His divine being. To know God as our Father, who has adopted us as His children and heirs, who loves us and cares for us in our daily lives. To know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who washes away our sins with His blood. To know the Holy Spirit as our Comforter, 
given to us to make us share in all Christ's benefits. If we're going to understand the glorious truth of the Trinity, we do well to return to that upper room. Already in the opening verses of John 13, the Apostle John records the truth, which provides a rich background for what is to follow. Jesus' home is in heaven. He came from God, and he was going back to God. At the end of John 13, Jesus told his disciples, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. At the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus called the disciples to faith in him. He said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus pointed out that the way to the Father was through him. He gave this promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus went on to speak about the indescribably rich relationship between him and the Father. Jesus tells the disciples, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Father sent his Son into the world, and Jesus lived to do the will of his Father in heaven. It is through Jesus' sacrificial love for us that we learn to know God as a Father, as one who loves us with a deep and abiding love. Here we see the mystery of the Godhead, beloved, that Jesus and the Father are one. But an even greater mystery is the miracle of rebirth. When Jesus dwells in us and we in him. Jesus spoke of this in John 15. He used the illustration of the vine and the branches to show how we are grafted into him through faith. He called the disciples and now also calls us saying, Abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus went on to call us his friends. As long as we do what he has commanded us. In John's presentation of the truth of the Trinity, we see that it is through Jesus Christ that we come to know the Father. And yet this is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit who leads us to Christ, who makes him known to us. And thus in the hours before his betrayal and arrest, the Lord Jesus also spoke to his disciples about the important place of the Holy Spirit in their salvation. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He is the one whom the Father would send when Jesus went up into heaven. The Father would send the Spirit as our comforter, as our counselor, as our helper. 
In John 15, 26, we read of the Spirit's task. Jesus said, He will bear witness of me. In John 16, verse 14, Jesus said, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. In John 17, which we read together, Jesus made the most explicit claim to his eternal Godhead. In John 17, verse 5, he prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In this prayer to the Lord, Jesus made it plain that he is God, that he has existed from eternity together with the Father in joy and glory. Jesus is praying that his earthly sojourn may come to an end, that he may take up his rightful position on the throne at God's right hand. In John 17, we see how the glorious truth of the Trinity impacts us as believers today. John 17 is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of our mediator, Jesus Christ. In this prayer, Christ not only prayed for himself and for his disciples, he also prayed for us. Listen to the words that Jesus prayed. He said, I do not pray for these, that is the disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Beloved, how rich these words are. In them, we not only see the close unity between the Father and the Son. We also see how God in His grace allows us to be one with Him. Here we see what it means when we confess the communion of saints. It means that believers, all and every one as members of Christ, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. God has not only forgiven us our sins through grace in Christ, He also unites us with Him so that we can live in an intimate relationship with Him, that we may experience the blessings of knowing God as our Father who loves us, who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. John's Gospel teaches us that the grace of God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It's through the indwelling of the Spirit by faith in Christ the Son that we are presented blameless and without spot before our Father in heaven. Is it possible for us to fully understand the mystery of one God who exists in three persons? Certainly not. And yet, we rejoice in the wondrous way in which we may share in the blessings of our triune God. Beloved, please remember that the promises of our God were signed and sealed to you at your baptism. You received the mark of God on your foreheads. 
each of the persons of the Trinity has made wonderful promises to you. The Father has promised to adopt you as his child, to love and care for you, to even turn the trials and hardships of this life to your benefit. The Son has promised to wash away your sins through his own blood, to unite you with him through his death and resurrection. The Spirit has promised to abide in you, to work renewal in your lives, to guide and direct you on the way everlasting. Beloved, it is not possible for us to fully know God. Let me repeat. Let me say that again. Beloved, it is possible for us to know God. God is not just some idea in our heads. God is not some distant or remote figure up in heaven, far removed from the daily realities of our lives. God is intimately involved with us through the redeeming work of Christ and the renewing work of the Spirit. We may live in in intimate fellowship with Him. We may depend on Him for everything we need for body and soul. May that reality comfort and strengthen us when we're faced with sorrows and hardships in our lives. May it encourage us to live joyful lives devoted to the service of our triune God. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing hymn three. We'll sing stanzas one, two, and five. <laughs>